Uh, the big question I want for us just to think about is, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? What does it really mean to follow Jesus? Not just simply have a religion, not just simply have Jesus in your corner, not just simply have a relationship with the big man upstairs, but I'm, I'm talking really mean to follow Jesus. I, I think if anything, we can all agree that um, the state of Christianity in America has various forms of potency as well as impotency. And I think we need to ask the bigger question, like what, like what does it really look like to follow Jesus? Not what megachurch influencer pastor has to say, not what super mega, mega-sized church down the street has to kind of uh, peddle as far as its agenda. What does Jesus have to say about truly following him? That's the nugget. That's the kernel that I really want for us to process and think about here today. And the last thing in terms of considering that and, and if this is what Jesus has to say, how do we orient our lives entirely around that? Does it make sense to do that? Is that a valid way to orient our lives and live and give the sum total of our uh, energy over towards? And uh, my, my hope would be by the end of this, uh, not my words, but really the words of Jesus and the words of the other uh, inspired authors of the scripture, would convince us. Um, we said from the very beginning, the Gospel of John, the writer of this great message is called John the Evangelist, or the Apostle John, otherwise known as. His whole aim or agenda in writing his book is so that as you listen to the words of Jesus, as you engage with the narrative of Jesus, as you see little snapshots or vignettes of Jesus' life, that, that you would be so overwhelmed, not just with evidence, but with beauty. So evidence is, is good. It's important. It's, we have witnesses that come onto the line and kind of tell us evidence or facts or data. But facts and data alone don't change a heart. Beauty changes a heart. And my hope would be that as we look at the life of Jesus, that we would catch this incredible snapshot of the beauty of Jesus, the compelling beauty of Jesus, that it would move us to completely devote the sum total of all that we are over to him. So with that, I want to just basically look at three little snapshots or movements in the passage here. Again, we'll just go verse by verse through it. So I want to begin in verse 35. We'll read down to verse 37. I'll make a couple comments, and then we'll move on to the next one, and then we will just keep going until we're done with the little section here. Let me pray, and then we will begin. So Jesus, even right now, we just pause. We just take a breath. We just welcome your presence here. As individuals as a collective, as a community, as people that are in love with you, as people that are a little bit questionable as to whether or not we do love you, whether or not we're even committed to you, all the way to people that might not even be convinced you are real. God, wherever people are at in this space here this morning, I pray that you'd make your presence known and they would be transformed by the goodness, beauty, and love of Jesus. God, this is something that my words alone cannot accomplish, um, but only your spirit can. So Holy Spirit, come breathe in this space. Wake dead hearts to life. Open blind eyes. Take ears that are plugged by way of cynicism and open them. Take hearts that are that are stuck in confusion, and give clarity. So we just commit it all in your hands. We pray this morning, we all said, amen. 
So it begins, it says, the next day. Now, if you were here last week, we, you know that we had actually looked at these two verses, but they kind of play into the rest of the story. So I'm just going to pick it up from what we looked at last week, but then it'll kind of help dovetail the remainder of what we'll be looking at here this morning. So uh, the next day, John, that's John the baptizer, he was standing with two of his disciples. Uh, it doesn't tell us who these disciples are. Well, it tells us one of the disciples. We know one of the guys is a, by, a guy by the name of Andrew. We'll get to him in just a moment. Uh, he's actually the brother of Simon Peter. Again, we'll get to him in just a moment. Um, but raises the question, who's the other disciple? And uh, a lot of scholars have kind of debated over this, but uh, there's a really good bit of history or historical tradition that actually believes the other guy that is a disciple of John uh, John the Baptizer is none other than the author of this book, um, which is which is kind of cool because it tells us a little. Now, again, we, we pointed this out from the very beginning. Um, John, the writer of this book, we made a little distinction last week between John the B, remember him, John the B, and John the Apostle, right? The Apostle John. And it gets a little bit confusing because of all the names of John. But the point of the matter is, is uh, John the Baptizer had disciples. There were people that followed him. And they were going with him wherever he went, and they were learning to do ministry the way he did ministry. And again, the idea of discipleship was a common uh, way of, in the first century, to kind of connect with a, a, a teacher or a leader and basically do everything that did, they did. Uh, it's distinct from the way that we think about having a professor today. Now, um, if you, some of you guys are, a lot of you guys might be students, but the fact of the matter is um, you, you would not look at a teacher as necessarily the same level of a mentor or on the same level as a, as a disciple. Uh, follower to that person um, because you might learn information or data from that particular professor, but you're not going to orient the entirety of your life around that professor. That'd be kind of weird and creepy. But the point of the matter is, in first century, uh, a person that would basically orient their lives around a particular other individual would be called a disciple. And they, their tradition that would went something like this, they would follow in the dust of their their master, their leader. And uh, the idea would be that they were so close behind the master that they would literally follow in the dust that would be kicked up. And they would learn everything about life and thinking and praying and service and activity and generosity and uh, following God and devotion to the, the ancient traditional paths and all. They would, they would literally devote their lives to the sum total. Again, the closest word that we have in our language today is the word apprentice. So if you are an apprentice to, say, a plumber, you're learning how to do everything plumbing-oriented uh, the way that your master, you wouldn't call him master necessarily. Uh, it's not PC, especially in today's world, but you get the idea. You would, you would, you would learn everything you can about plumbing as you could from that particular person. In the same way, these disciples were following John the baptizer. And so we know one of them being Andrew, the other possibly being John the beloved. Uh, verse 36, and then he looked at Jesus and he walked by and he said, behold the lamb of God. Again, a phrase that we looked at last week. It was a reference that would take uh, all listeners immediately back to the Passover, in other words, in the book of Exodus. And so Jesus is identified as a Passover lamb. Now, it's important to note that within the classification of certain phrases that Jesus gets attributed, so for example, in this context, the lamb of God. Um, when someone or a first century Jew would say the lamb of God, they would not treat that as or think of that in terms of like, oh, Jesus, that's God. Jesus is God. This is God in the flesh. They would look, that again, that would come later, and that would form in other aspects. But there are different titles that meant different things. In this particular context, it would, they would look at it and think Jesus is, has uh, properties about him that carries or takes away or does away with sin. 
So there's something about Jesus that actually carries or lifts or removes guilt and defilement and makes another person clean. This is the image. Um, later, uh, in the other gospel accounts, it actually describes Jesus getting baptized. And, uh, and the, the point that has been made there is that Jesus himself says, I need to be baptized by John the baptizer, which is kind of a, an odd feature about the life of Jesus. Uh, one uh, scholar described it this way, that everyone else getting baptized went into the water defiled and came out clean. Jesus is the only one that went in clean, came out absorbing the defilement of others. The only one. It's pretty powerful when you think of it that way. But here we see Jesus being identified as the Lamb of God. Verse 37 says, Then the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Again, there's a lot going on here, but one of the things that I think is important is just the, the word discipleship, going back to the idea of discipleship. So these disciples of John, the John the B, John the baptizer, they immediately left John and they begin to follow Jesus. Now again, John the apostle, who is telling us the story, doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about this interaction, what's going on here. Other gospel accounts tell us that. Uh, you know, you're familiar with the phrase or the, the, the moment when John the baptizer uh, watched many of his followers leave his ministry and go after Jesus. He says, oh, I must decrease and he, Jesus, must increase. In other words, John recognized that his reputation is not what's most important. His whole aim in life is not to be this like Middle Eastern, you know, influencer, gathering thousands upon thousands of, of followers or creating a fandom around himself. His whole main objective in life was to get people to see Jesus. I love this about John. There's something really powerful about John. John even, uh, Jesus even describes John as being the greatest of all the prophets because John was able to point people to Jesus. At the end of the day, guys, like we can comp, we can uh, uh, confuse Christianity or create complexities about it that that are way beyond. But the most simplistic way, just think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is I just point other people to Jesus. That's my that's my aim. So whatever it is that you do, whether you're a musician or a speaker or you lead a Bible study or you change diapers or you make a really mean cup of coffee or whatever it is that you do, if you can get into your mind or as a mom or a dad or whatever your role is in life, whatever uh, societal place that you find yourself in the midst of, the aim, if you can look at that and saying, my goal in life is to help people to see Jesus. This is what makes John the baptizer so powerful and this story so compelling is that whatever the case was, these two people left John and began to follow Jesus. A discipleship, the most common way to describe followers of Jesus throughout the New Testament is actually not Christian, which not the word Christian, I should say. Uh, we typically think in today's world, you ask someone like, hey, what, what do you call a follower of Jesus? Like, is that a trick question? No, what do you call them? Like most of us would be like, Christian. That's what we call Christians. Or you might say believer. But do you know that in the Bible, the, the way the New Testament actually describes this is not Christian. The word Christian is only used maybe like three or four times. The word, predominant word actually used to describe those that follow Jesus is the word disciple. So it's an important word, if anything, for you to have in your vocabulary so that you're at your next party and someone asks the same question, you can like give the answer. And you can sound really scholarly and smart. But no, the point of the matter is, is that it's important for us to at least be aware of certain biblical terminology and words. In this particular context, it's the word disciple. So those that follow Jesus, those that are faithful to Jesus, are called or termed disciples. 
Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous preacher during World War II in Germany, uh, most of you guys are probably familiar with him. He had written this about the word or the idea of discipleship. He says, discipleship never consists of this or that specific action. It is always a decision either for or against Jesus Christ. Jesus speaks to us exactly as he has spoken to them. His disciples. It was not as though they were first, they all first recognized that he is the Christ, in other words, the king, and then they received his command. They believed and followed his word and recognized him as Christ in that order. So, in other words, what we see kind of throughout the New Testament is Jesus invites people to follow him. They follow him, and then they begin to receive revelation and understanding and broadening of their understanding about who Jesus is. Many of us, we want to reverse that. Because you know what? At the end of the day, we want to weigh our options. We really want to, to, to try to figure this out. I'll follow you, Jesus, if you do X, Y, and Z for me. If you're profitable for me. If it'll work out for me. If I have enough time on my schedule for me. If it doesn't demand too much of me. Maybe. Maybe. I'll follow you. In other words, get this. We are the ones that set the parameters. That's, that is not consistent with the New Testament format of discipleship. Jesus sets the parameters. Jesus sets the agenda. We as followers say, yes, Lord. We as followers of Jesus say we will be faithful to that as best as we can. Be faithful to that. If there's areas that we don't understand, areas that don't make a whole lot of sense to us, we will live into that. We will devote ourselves. We will marry ourselves. We will tether ourselves to you as the Messiah, as the king, because that's what it means, a Messiah or anointed one is king. Again, the big question is, is, is really at the end of the day of kingship. Who is the ultimate king? If we are the ones setting the parameters, setting the agenda, setting the conditions... Would it not be logical to assume that we are setting ourselves up with kingly features over him? In other words, we're reversing the order. So what it means to really follow Jesus is to say, Jesus, you are king over everything, over all things. And my aim in life is to submit and to learn from you, to grow from you, to learn life through your lens, to follow in your footsteps as closely as I can, uh, and, and, and recognize that you will shape and guide me in that journey. And this is exactly what we see in verses 35 to 37. Verse 38, as we continue on, it says, Then Jesus turned, and he saw them following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? And then he said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. Uh, one interesting feature about the Gospel of John that you'll notice that there's uh, multiple occasions where he will use a word and then he'll actually provide the interpretation or the translation of that. This is interesting. It's actually kind of one of those like little features that has kind of raised the, 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 the interest of a lot of scholars, people kind of more on the nerdy spectrum, people like me. I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Um, but the point of the matter is it kind of asks the question, begs the question, why does John do this? And many believe it's actually, this is a, this was written to people that were unfamiliar with certain terminology. Um, some have actually suggested that maybe, and I, I'm not sure the scholarship of this or how valid this is, but some have actually suggested that this particular gospel account was actually written to the community of people that were Samaritans. In other words, they were kind of half-breeds. 
they were very far from God, and though they had a religious heart, and they were unfamiliar with certain terminology. And so John, as he's writing the book to them, he's also taking the time to pause and reflect upon certain words and then provide particular interpretations. In this particular case, he says, and they said to him, Rabbi, which just in case you're not familiar with the word rabbi means, he actually provides interpretation. It means uh, teacher. Uh, he says, uh, where are you staying? So it's kind of an interesting little exchange. Jesus asked them, what are you guys looking for? Uh, and I, I want to pause and just reflect upon this. Imagine right now if Jesus were to come into this room and say to you, what are you seeking? What's the longing beneath your longing? What are you really desiring in life? What do you want? Not as a Santa Claus, hey, I'll give you everything that your heart ever wished or dreamed for. Not as a cosmic pinata that you just whack in the right angle, it's going to release all the goods. But as king, who the book of Revelation says he has eyes of fire, that he, he can see through you. He knows every single desire, longing that you have. And he asks you this question, what are you really seeking? He asks this question to these guys, and their answer is like, where are, you, where are you staying? Which is cool. Like, hey, where are you, where are you living, Jesus? We want to know your house. We want to see it. We want to check it out. I don't know. They, they're, that's probably the only thing that kind of came to their mind. Jesus, where are you staying? And so then he said to them, come and see, and I will show you. And so they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Um, one interesting aspect about this particular thing, John Again, the author here tells us that it was about the uh, later on in the afternoon, the 10th hour, which is probably like late afternoon, like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And if that being the case, uh, some have suggested that this is sort of a, a metaphorical way of just implying that Jesus invites them to, to stick around for some dinner. It's another like metaphorical way of saying, hey, stick around, let's have some table fellowship. And I, I love this, if this is true, which I, I think it is, it makes sense. Jesus' ministry, a lot of it, revolved around food. <laughs> I like food. Um, I know some of you guys also like food as well. But the point of the matter is food is awesome, especially when you have food in the context of some of your best friends, people that you enjoy their company. Uh, Jesus describes the kingdom of God as being not just in food and drink, but there are multiple occasions in which Jesus has said the kingdom of heaven is like this. And then he gives an example of what, what it really looks like when God shows up, people respond, and this is what it looks like. He will oftentimes give these analogies. It's like when God shows up and the kingdom of God unfolds, it'll look like a massive banquet. People gather around a table being fed and cared for. And loved and welcome. In other words, every human being that's a part of this party has a place to belong. They're known. They have others to know them, to be known by others, to have a place of belonging, a place that you are not out in the margins, uh, forgotten or bullied or taken advantage of, but it's a safe spot. You are in the presence of God. I love this. Uh, the book of Revelation is actually... Heading towards this big, massive, a lot of times when people, especially Westerners, read the book of Revelation and tend to think of it as just really nothing more than Armageddon and number 666 and like doom and gloom and destruction. And uh, if, if that has been your experience with the book of Revelation, I'm sorry. You, you were sold a bill of goods. That is not what the book of Revelation is about. It is about a banquet. 
in which Jesus is king over all humanity, invites all people from all stripes, all walks of life, all places of brokenness, all places of dysfunctionality to trust him as king and he will put their life back to right. In other words, if you want to think of it this way, the kingdom of heaven is like this great dinner party with all of the wrong guests involved and invited. (laughs) All the wrong guests. There's people like you and I, in case you're wondering, who are the wrong guests? It's like me and you, all of us. We don't deserve to be in the presence of such a great king with such great delicacies, with such immeasurable worth and value. But that's what grace is. Grace takes people that do not deserve it and it welcomes them in and says, you have a place. I love you. I know everything about you. You're right. You are definitely someone that might be seeking things that would not necessarily rightly fit the list of agenda items that I want to give out. But nonetheless, I will give you a new heart, new desires, new longings, and especially I will give you a place at the table you belong. It's one of the beautiful images that the church has actually all, always, from its very beginning, been identified as. And then as we go on through this, we see in verses 40 to 42, as we kind of wrap this up, it says, one of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus. Uh, his name was Andrew. He says, Simon Peter. Simon Peter's brother. Now, what John's going to do now is going to, in the narrative, tell us a little bit about Peter. So he's kind of getting to Peter. Um, if you're familiar with the story of John and Peter and the other disciples, um, there are three main guys that were like part of Jesus' like inner crew. Jesus had 12 disciples or 12 apostles, and he had multiple disciples, but 12 apostles. Um, and there were three apostles that were kind of part of this select group that Jesus spent most of his time with, Peter, James, and John. And so uh, now John, the writer, is actually introducing us into the story of how Peter plays in the narrative. But the way he does this is unique because he tells us, first of all, about Andrew. Why does he tell us about Andrew? I'm not sure exactly other than to maybe point out some interesting facts about Andrew. Then he goes on to say, Jesus then turned and saw them both coming towards him. And he said, uh, sorry, uh, verse uh, 40, he says, one of the two who heard John speak followed Jesus, uh, Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother. And he first was... Uh, he first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. Again, in other words, uh, those moments where he pauses and translates or interprets for us what he's actually meaning because he uses the word, we found the Messiah. And again, if you're wondering, like, what in the world does Messiah mean? Just in case you're wondering, it means the Christ, right? So now you got all clarity, right? So some of us are like, wait, what? Christ, Messiah, I'm not sure what that means. Uh, I mentioned last week, the word Christ or Messiah can literally just be interchanged with the word king or absolute benevolent Monarch, if you want another like big lengthy terminology to use. Absolute benevolent monarch. That's who Jesus is. He's he's the Christ, the king. And what Simon is summoned to by way of his brother Andrew is he's come come meet the one. He's the absolute benevolent monarch. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the king that we've been long waiting for. He's here. And what I love about this is that. Andrew brings his brother, Simon, to Jesus. How did you come to meet Jesus? Think about that. Who, who brought you to Jesus? I can think about people in my life that played significant roles. Um, I've told you this before, but one of the significant ones was actually my stepmom. When my parents divorced, my dad got remarried. It was my stepmom that saw me as a young... Um, I don't know why I feel stupid. I don't know why I was losing in telling my story, but I was a lost 15-year-old that needed hope. I'm done. Stop it. 
And my stepmom saw through all my facade, all my lies, all my deception, and she she called my dad on it. He's lying. He's getting drunk. He's doing stuff he knows he shouldn't be doing. And and I know it. I see she was married to an alcoholic, so she was pretty familiar with the whole alcohol stuff. And so she called my dad on me. And she was the one that played an intricate role in terms of, first of all, getting me busted to where I was grounded for a long time to not be able to serve. Secondly, she was also someone that God used in my life to lead me to the forgiveness of God. To, to tell me, to help me understand how much God loves me in spite of my failures and brokenness and fragile nature. God loves me and he's, he's for me. Who, who was it that brought you to Jesus? Who is it that played a significant role in helping you to see, maybe for the first time, who and how God loves you and what he's done for you? Now, think about it this way, even extending from that. How maybe does God want to use you to help someone else see his goodness? Who are people in your life that maybe God wants to use you as the one that's going to lead them or bring them to the person of Jesus? This is the beautiful way in which the gospel works. It's not about these big massive crusades. So those might have a place and they might be important, might be significant. Really the, the heart of the gospel is as simple as we're reading it here. Someone meets Jesus. They're blown away by his beauty. They're compelled by his nature. They go tell their brother. Their brother comes. Their brother gets transformed. This is the way the gospel works. I think in our culture today, we've become so wired by the system uh, and we look for somebody else who's the professional, somebody else who's got the credential, somebody else who's got the ability, who is more articulate than we are, who has a better story or a better testimony. And we let them be the ones to tell the story about the grace and the goodness of God. When in reality, guys and gals, all of us, Jesus is inviting us into that process of saying, no, you have a testimony. Your story matters. You matter to God, and God will empower you and use you to tell others about Jesus. So think about it this way. Who are people in your life right now that God has strategically placed you there to help them to meet Jesus? Again, it's not an issue of like guilt or shame, like I'm not doing it enough. No, 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 no. It's, it's about recognizing this is how the kingdom of God goes forward. God just uses normal, regular people like you and I to just tell the story what God has done and what he's up to and how he brings order order because that's what kings do kings are intended by God's divine graces to bring order where there was chaos that's what a benevolent cosmic monarch does he brings order in exchange for chaos lastly as we go on into this little moment here verse 42 i think one of the most powerful passages that we've read up to this point aside from a couple other really important ones. But here's the point I would make. Verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. It's Peter. Jesus looked at him and he said, Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas. And again, another little interpretation, which actually means Peter. So I love this because there's a little bit of a movement that's going on here. Number one, Simon brings, or Simon is brought to Jesus by his brother Andrew. Here, Simon is standing in front of Jesus and it tells us Jesus looked at him. Pause and think about that. Again, there's a lot to the text that we read that we can kind of glance over and we just don't really, it doesn't really hit us. But Jesus looked at Peter. What was that look like? Was it one of disdain? Was Jesus folding his arms like, what a fool? Was he angry? Was he grumpy? Was he having a bad day? 
my, my guess, again, this is my, my guess, I think Jesus probably smiled at Peter. Like, welcome, welcome. I'm so glad you're here, Peter. I've heard about you, Peter. I'm stoked that you're here, Peter. He probably didn't use the word stoked, but maybe he did. But he walked on water, so he was kind of a surfer. But the point that I would make is this, that he welcomed Peter into that moment. And whatever it was, Jesus then identifies him. He says, you are Simon, son of John, son of Jonah, some of your translations might read. But then he renames him. But I'm going to call you Cephas. What's going on here? The, the practice of naming is huge throughout the Bible. The very first time we see the practice of naming being done is, is by uh, Adam in the book of Genesis. God tells Adam, Adam, name all the animals. And Adam starts naming things. The, the, the practice of naming something is a way of ex- exerting uh, agency over them. In other words, they're, they're, again, we, I mentioned this last week, so see last week's message. We abhor hierarchy in our culture today, but hierarchy is part of a system and a structure that God has set up in nature. We know that human beings have primacy over primates. There is a hierarchy over other things. Now, hierarchy can be abused. People can take advantage of their hierarchical structural or their uh, regency over someone else and abuse other people. And that's, that's wickedness. It's evil. It needs to be called out for what it is. But nonetheless, that doesn't call us or cause us to somehow steer away from certain elements of hierarchy. In this particular context, what Jesus, I think, is saying is that, Peter, I'm giving you a new name. I have agency over your life to speak something fresh and brand new in you that did not exist before. I just want you to pause and think about this. In today's culture, we live in a world today that is about respect. That if you don't say the right word or pronoun or name or identity towards another person, that it can be an act of incredible humiliation, disdain, or in some cases even viewed as oppression or violence. But how did we get there? And what's really happening here in the passage, I think, is important to note. And I think what's taking place here is something that I don't want any of us to miss. Because I think what Jesus is doing with Peter is he's not just simply giving him a brand new name. He's giving him a brand new identity and thus a brand new destiny. This is what's happening here. Do not, do not miss this. Because I think many of us, we live in a culture today where we have thousands thousands of identities that are accessible to us or available to us, and we are constantly trying on a new version of an identity to upgrade our old self, the one that we have grown uh, disgusted with or disliked towards or disdain as a result of, and therefore we just keep trading up new types, new forms, new versions of identities. And at the end of the day, at some point, this leads to utter exhaustion. And what Jesus is offering here is mind-blowing. Because he's saying, I'll, I'll give you an identity. I'll give you a new name. And I will give you a brand new hope in a future. Let me be the one that named you. Let me be the one that exercises agency over you. I have your life in my hands. And I have the power to carry you through the hard times and the challenges and the difficulties. And what's interesting to me is that this question of who am I? Where do I belong? Who are my people? Has been a predominant feature in the West, Western world for a very long time, for at least 90 to 100 years, which is kind of fascinating when you think about it, which in the, in the, in the course of all humanity, 90 years is pretty small. 
to be in this like massive quest for identity. Who am I? Who are my people? Where do I belong? But it's become the predominant feature of the Western world set mindset. So I'm going to give you just a really brief little history of this. I think it might be helpful for us to consider and really contrast the words of Jesus to the world in which we live in. So if you guys bear with me for just a few minutes, hopefully this all makes sense. So beginning around the 1920s or 30s, there's a guy by the name of Edward Bernays. Some of you might be familiar with him. He is commonly known as the father of either propaganda or spin or uh, personal relations is what they typically have come to call it because the word propaganda sounded too Nazi-ish. And so they got rid of the word propagandize and they described, they called it public relations. And his whole aim was to create a means of selling the public on certain goods and services. So prior to or after uh, World War One, as well as World War Two, for the most part, consumerism, the way that people purchased goods, did not have anything really for the most part to do with your identity. In other words, you would not buy a car because it was like, oh, I want a new car because that's going to make me look awesome. You would buy a car because it was functional. Does that make sense? You'd buy a dishwasher because it helped you with the functional day-to-day grind of life. You did not buy a dishwasher because it's like, now I'm going to up my like status. Like That was not how it was viewed. So there was an experiment. Bernays was one of the, he's actually the, the nephew of Sigmund Freud, if you're familiar with his story. He's really fascinating. In fact, there's a three-part, four-part series on YouTube you can check out. It's called The Century of Self. It's highly recommend checking it out. But the point that I would make with regard to this is that Edward Bernays basically used many of the psychological features that his, his uncle utilized, but within the context of consumerism and the purchase of goods and whatnot. Um, but what he described is around the 1920s and the 30s, uh, there was a famous uh, cigarette campaign. So up until that point, for the most part, only half the population was smoking cigarettes. Guess what half that was? It was men. So women smoking cigarettes was kind of viewed as like, ah, disdainful. Nobody wants to be with a woman that smokes a cigarette because that's, that's gross. And so what Edward Bernays did is he put into application certain practices to say, we've got to get the population, general population, to realize that it's actually cool and sexy for a woman to smoke a cigarette. Uh, again, I'm going to go down a little bit of a rabbit trail, but bear with me. Uh, Freud describes cigarettes as basically being a phallic symbol. In other words, a symbol of power. And in other words, to put a phallic symbol, a cigarette, into the hands of a female would cause her to feel empowered. So the, the trick is, is how do we get cigarettes in the hands of women so that then they feel empowered, in other words, to basically begin to buy these cigarettes? And so what he did is he did this experiment that uh, in downtown uh, New York City, um, he had a big parade and he had all these beautiful women come out and they all began to smoke. And this began the race by way of big tobacco to sell cigarettes to the other half of population. Then we lived for the next 50 years thinking that cigarettes were awesome until we began to realize, oh, wait a minute, they kill people. And there was a massive retraction and pull back and say, we're going to try to defund big tobacco industries. And that's kind of where we're at today. So again, if you smoke today, you know, no, no judgment. I'm just trying to give you a little bit of backstory on some of this. But that being said, this kind of led to a counterculture of people that said, in order to be and to have an identity of empowerment, there are certain things I need to have, I need to engage, I need to have in my hands in order to feel empowered, to feel that I belong to this community of people that I want to belong to, to tell my life, to tell myself that I matter, I I have value, I have meaning, I have purpose in this life. 
And that kind of led to the 1960s and the 70s, post-World War II, uh, things like the countercultural movement. You had like the beatnik generation that led to like the hippie culture where a lot of the idea and the concepts around free love and how long you grew your hair and who you hung out with and how many orgies that you would go to. These were all means to identify and to create an identity for oneself until it came to a point where it just led people down a path of psychedelics and drugs and just radical disillusionment. Radical disillusionment. And then it bred into the uh, the Jesus movement. Right? Many people became Christians, and that kind of opened up into early 80s, all the way around the 2020s. You would have people still fighting for, trying to figure out a distinct identity that they can latch onto. So my generation, for example, it'd be like you're either a jock, meaning you played sports, obviously, or that you were you know, part of the cheerleader squad. Or like for me, in my high school growing up, I was like a surfer. I hung out with the surfer guys, which really didn't really hang out with too many guys because we were all pretty independent or skater crew and whatnot. And that kind of led to this, this underground movement of like punk music, rockers, goth, all the way into the 90s and whatnot. And up into the present day right now, from around 2010s to the present, We've seen this shift move from all of these other forms of subcultures into the culture in which we find today that's been around the subject of gender identity. Who am I has to do with how I view my identity in the context of gender and sexuality and how we play into this. Now, how one emotionally, physically, sexually perceives themselves. This is our culture today up to date. And this, these are the types of challenges that many, many today are trying to face. And it all has this undergirded root beneath it, which is, who am I? Where do I belong? And how do I fit in? Who are my people? It's a question of identity. The very same thing that Peter was being called by Jesus to step into is the very same type of questions that we find ourselves dealing with today. Now, a couple interesting features about this, again, by way of recognizing our culture today, is most of this is actually Western. It's distinctly Western. I mean, Western meaning like North America, West Europe, United Kingdom, Scandinavia, Australia, New Zealand. In other words, the majority part of the world actually does not embrace this, like Africa, South America, Asia, all the entire Middle East. Um, And again, it's kind of caused, especially Western countries, especially Western countries like the western coast of this country, uh, to look at other countries that don't hold these same types of viewpoints on gender identification as being regressive, oppressive, or very backwards. But that's fascinating to me that that would be the posture because, again, all of this is relatively new. It's literally less than 10 to 30 years old. To stake your entire identity structure on a concept or an ideology that's less than 30 years old It's unproven. We don't even know where it's heading. We don't even know where it's going. But what we do know is we do know the types of effects that our culture in the West especially are dealing with more so than ever. Because what we also know is that the pandemic has actually accelerated all of this. So in case some of you are wondering, how come it seems as if the past six months to a year and a half, this stuff has accelerated? Good question. It has, absolutely has, because of the pandemic. The pandemic basically shut people down. It caused them to feel a deep sense of loneliness and ache. They had a lot of time in their hands. So they would spend the next two and a half to three years in an online secular catechism within groups 
trying to discern and to understand who am I, where do I fit in, how do I belong in this culture? Because I have these deep feelings, these longings, these desires. I don't know how to articulate them. I don't know how to live into them. And it was in this catechism online that basically began to create a framework for many people to live into. So what we're seeing today is a lot of movement towards this as a result of this. And yet here's the interesting thing with regard to this. We know because we know the data. We know the data. The West, more so than ever on this side of the pandemic, we have become more suicidal, more lonely, people dealing with more meaninglessness, depression, self-harming, antidepressants, antidepressants than ever before throughout the history of this nation. Some would say, well, it's because the oppression is so high. We are more accepting of a na- as a nation than we've ever been in the entirety of our history. That's the fact. But why is it that depression and suicide and substance abuse is at such an all-time high? Something's not adding up. And all of that I would suggest to you all goes back to this number one underlying question. Who am I? Where do I belong? And who are my people? And it's to this that Jesus would say to Peter, You are Simon, son of John but you will be called Cephas. Jesus either has authority over my life to define me or he doesn't. C.S. Lewis says this. I'm done. Slide. I think we have it up there, hopefully. No? No, we don't. Okay. C.S. Lewis says this. (laughs) Imagine yourself as living as a living house. God comes to rebuild that house. At first, Perhaps you can understand that he is what he is doing. He is getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks on the roof and so on. You know that these jobs needed being done, and so you're not surprised. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you imagine, constructing a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you uh, were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace one which he intends to come and live in. The more we let God take over, take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Because he made us, he invented us, he invented all the different people that you and I were invented or intended to be. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give up myself to his personality that I begin, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. So in summary to our original question, a Christian is one who follows, who follows Jesus completely. Just, I will follow you. Who lives in fellowship with Jesus. I want to be with you. Have dinner with you. Sup with you. Dine with you. Learn from you. Grow from you. And then lastly, one who submits to this new identity he calls him to. Guys, our culture is in a crisis moment right now. And the underlying crisis is one of identity. Who am I? Who are my people? And where do I belong? And the solutions and answers that have been constantly given over and over and over again, ad infinitum, lead to dead ends and broken hearts and utter exhaustion 
And it's to this generation that Jesus would say, come to me, all of you who are burdened and filled with anxiety, and I will give you rest. Because I alone have rest to give. So I don't know where you're at, how this even resonates with you, but my hope would be that if you're a follower of Jesus, that this would do nothing but reinforce the beauty, the compelling nature of who Jesus is, that you would live into him boldly, communicate him to those others in your life that may need to know who Jesus is. If you're somebody that's on this journey and still trying to figure out makes sense, does Jesus really make sense? My hope and answer to you is I hope it becomes really clear. He does make sense. His life is truly the good life. It's been proven for the past thousands of years of people that have found him faithful. And by the multitude upon multitude of those that would be uh, spoken of in the book of Revelation around the throne of God that would bear testimony to the greatness and the kindness and the goodness and the generosity of Jesus and the life that he's given to them. So I want to have us all stand and I'm going to pray and then Jordan will have some final words to dismiss us with. So Father, right now we just, again, turn our hearts to you. We need you more than anything. In this culture. Thank you, Jesus, for the life that you offer. It's free. It'll cost us everything. Because to follow you is costly. But God, thank you that in the cost that's incurred of saying yes to you, saying no to all other alternative story, the end of that is a life everlasting. The end of that is a well-done, good and faithful servant. The end of that is a holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. The end of all of that is worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain, that took upon himself my sin, my guilt, my shame. In other words, the love of God is what will forever be what defines us. So God, I pray for my friends here, my brothers and sisters in this building right now. God, no matter where we're at, we pray, God, that you would address and speak to every circumstance that we have need of in our lives. God, for those that might be here this morning that don't know you, that are far from you, that are still trying to make sense of you, uh, caught up in the currents of our culture today and the narratives and the myths and the stories that are being told God, I pray that there would be a deep sense of clarity about the gospel message, the good news that you proclaim, and that you would give us a deep resound to say yes to you, to follow you with all that we have, because you alone, Jesus, are worthy. So God, as we scatter now, empower us to be people that live like you, look like you, act like you, and all that we do. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all sin.